We, but we do have a, an excellent uh, program this afternoon. I would like to start by um, introducing our next speaker, who's Dr. Um, Howard um, Libman. You've already met him on the panel, and I think that um, you already know that he has a active and keen interest both in internal medicine and in HIV medicine. He is uh, boarded in both. Um, he um, is a uh, emeritus professor of uh, medicine at um, Harvard Medical School um, and is involved in a number of um, programs uh, locally in Boston, um, sort of overseeing uh, HIV care, but also delivers HIV care uh, to, to, uh, as a primary care provider. And so I think you already heard some of the um, interest he has in management of internal medicine patients and uh, uh, HIV infected or not, um, and he's going to elaborate on that um, in his talk um, now um, entitled, Primary Care of the HIV-Infected Adult, If I Can Do It, You Can Do It. Thank you very much. To bring this down a notch, can, can you hear me on the sides of the room? Yes? How about this side? Okay. My wife tells me my voice trails off, so if my voice starts to trail off, she can yell at me like she does. Um, I have no relevant financial relationships to disclose. So there are four main learning objectives for this talk. I'm going to start off with a brief uh, discussion of the role of primary care in HIV management. I'm a clinician educator at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. I'm based in the Division of General Medicine, uh, but I've always had uh, an academic and clinical interest in HIV. So about a quarter of my patients are HIV infected but I take care of a lot of other people who do not have HIV infection, but have a lot of the similar comorbidities that we're dealing with in this patient population. I'm gonna go on to discuss the general effects of aging on HIV, um, spend most of the time discussing management of specific comorbidities in the HIV-infected patient, um, and particularly gonna focus on risk factors for atherosclerosis, coronary artery disease, which as the patient population gets older will become more and more of a concern. <laughs> and then lastly, uh, discuss healthcare maintenance issues. So you may or may not be able to read this. Uh, the important points on this slide are really circled in red. Uh, number one, there's a need for increased primary care services in the HIV-infected population. Patients are living longer, um, they're developing comorbidities. Unfortunately, uh, there are not enough people in internal medicine going into primary care, and there's even a smaller percentage of those people who have an interest and predisposition to provide comprehensive care for HIV-infected patients. And this is a big issue, and it's been recognized for well over five, six years by the Institute of Medicine and other bodies. And uh, I'm not sure there's a quick fix to it other than to uh, try to encourage trainees to uh, consider this as a, as a, as a viable profession. Um, so there's a need for increased primary care services, and at the same time, there's going to be decreased capacity for provision of primary care. Um, people like myself and some even older ones at some point will retire, and we actually need a new generation of providers prov uh, doing uh, this kind of work. And uh, some days I'm optimistic about it, other days I'm not so optimistic about it. I think things will eventually work out, at least today. Um, there's a lot of different ways we can try to get people to do this work. Um, this is a study that uh, we published. It's a description of a training program incorporating HIV training into internal medicine uh, residency program. There's lots of other ways to do it as well. Um, people have developed HIV fellowships, people have developed uh, clinical ID fellowships that are focused on HIV management. The point is we need to identify people during training who are interested in this field and give them the opportunity to feel competent in providing care. So uh, just a little bit of epidemiologic background to reinforce what you're already aware. Uh, there's about 40,000 new cases of HIV infection in the United States in the past few years. That's down from what was 50,000 in uh, the decade before. Um, I've highlighted in red uh, those people that are 50 years of age and older, which in the HIV literature, 50 is considered older. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that anymore, but I used to. 
Um, you can see that out of the 40,000, about um, one, maybe about five, 6,000 of them are people over the age of 50. So there's certainly people being diagnosed with HIV infection that are in the older age category. Probably more importantly, in terms of managing current patients, is there's about uh, 1.1 million people living with HIV in the United States. And again, I've highlighted in the red bars those people that are over the age of 50, and you can see about 30% of them are in that group. And that, that percentage is increasing over time, not surprisingly, as patients are doing well on antiretroviral therapy, um, but are predisposed to developing other comorbidities related to aging. What's included in primary care responsibilities? This is my list. Other people may have different lists. Uh, I include antiretroviral therapy and monitoring patients on it and medication adherence. Obviously, as with all uh, people who practice general internal medicine, there will be some cases where you need to uh, get, some, uh, get some input from uh, consultants or experts. And I think in this category would fall uh, people that have multi-drug resistance or multiple drug toxicities and are complex and you're not quite sure which regimen uh, to choose as third or fourth line. But certainly initiation of antiretroviral therapy and monitoring medication adherence um, should be considered what primary care practitioners, especially those that are interested in HIV, can do. Um, I, it's, it, it's, often, it, it's kind of going through the entire uh, story of the epidemic. It's, it's kind of interesting now that really initial management of HIV is far less complicated than initial management of diabetes in some ways. And I, I try to remind my primary care colleagues of this, but uh, some of them listen and some of them not so much. And then you've seen these continuum of care charts before. I guess the only point I wanted to make here is that we're doing a better job at diagnosing HIV. Uh, it's uh, only about one out of seven people who are HIV infected that are not aware of their uh, diagnosis, which is great, much better than we were doing 10 years ago. Um, the biggest drop-off, however, in terms of getting from diagnosed to virally suppressed is between uh, that and engagement in care. So we have a lot of work we can do in improving engagement of care, getting people in, into care, and keeping them in care. And some of this has to do with insurance issues. Some of this has to do with traditional, the fact that HIV has, a, has disproportionately affected uh, disadvantaged populations and so forth. But there's a lot more work since we have about a 50% fallout between diagnosis and engagement of care to go. All right, so what about the effects of aging? Um, I've got some uh, uh, audience response questions that are part of this. So this is the first one. Um, and I think this was part of your pretest, and about 40% of you got it right, so I'm hoping that at least 40% of you will get this one right. Which of the following statements about HIV-infected patients over the age of 50 is false? They present in an earlier stage of disease. They constitute 30% of HIV-infected patients. They're at increased risk for developing common age-related comorbidities compared to the general population. And fourth, they are more adherent to medical therapy. One of these is false, the others are true. People must be dozing because we're only up to 11. <laughs> okay, we're pretty good now. Okay, good. So you improved over your pretest scores, I can tell you. Um, and the first, first uh, statement is uh, the one that's false. They don't present at earlier stages of disease. In fact, they present later than, than younger patients. They do constitute about 30%. They are certainly at increased risk for age, so traditional age-related comorbidities, and I'll discuss that shortly. And they tend to be more adherent to medical therapy because everybody knows people over 50 don't have anything else to do other than take medications. <laughs> So um, that makes perfect sense to me. So this is a, this is a cartoon from uh, Up to Date, uh, where I actually worked for a year. It was kind of an interesting experience, but not the focus of this discussion. Um, and this is uh, to uh, describe um, what, this, what, what happens with normal <coughs> aging. And um, those of you who are over 50, I apologize in advance. I'm in your group. But um, the way to think about it is, is that we're all born with lots of physiologic reserves. And as time goes on, the physiologic reserves we possess diminish over time. And at some point, we get to a point where there's an acute stressor, maybe pneumonia, maybe a fall with a broken hip, uh, that can actually uh, sort of tip the balance of things. And you've all seen this with your patients, people that are 70s, 80s, perfectly healthy, doing well. They fall, they break a hip, they develop DVT or pneumonia, 
and then they develop uh, renal failure, et cetera. So this is the point that at some point, when you get older, there, you may be encountering a stress that will kind of tip the balance of things. And then it, unless they're de it's dealt with quickly, can result in obviously important adverse outcomes. So what do we know about HIV and aging? There have been several studies that I think have convincingly shown that the traditional age-related comorbidities that we see in all patients, hypertension, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease, um, et cetera, tend to occur more frequently in HIV-infected patients and generally affect them at a somewhat younger age. And I'm gonna just show you three studies briefly. Uh, this first one was published in Clinical Infectious Disease from 2011. And uh, the, um, the columns on the left are the cases. This is a case control trial with a large number of patients. The columns on the right are the controls. And within each of the columns, each of the columns is a decade of life, less than 40, 41 to 50, 51 to 60, and so forth. And the darker bars within each of the uh, columns represent increasing numbers of medical comorbidities that are not strictly HIV related. And what you can see, this is more of a pattern recognition uh, 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 process, but what you can see is that if you look at the cases, less than 40, 41 to 50, 51 to 60, and uh, track those uh, to the right, which are the controls, you can see that there's, at least in this study, there's about a 10-year lag in terms of the pattern of developing medical comorbidities. So at least in this study, it looked like if people were going to develop medical comorbidities, they'll develop them about 10 years earlier than an uninfected population. This is another study that was published about three years later, um, and the basic principle <coughs> is the same. Um, HIV-infected patients are on the left, HIV-uninfected patients on the right. These are in five-year increments instead of 10. And you can see, again, with mostly pattern recognition, that there seems to be about a five-year offset in terms of development of medical comorbidities. So these two studies and others like them, I think I have one more. This is a study um, that was recently, uh, oh, this is the same one, I'm sorry, the, this is from 2014. These look at the specific medical comorbidities, and you can see that the trend for HIV-infected patients is for them to have more of them, all of them, but they reach statistical significance uh, for hypertension, uh, myocardial infarction, peripheral artery disease, and impaired renal function. And then more recently, uh, Joel Gallant uh, published an article in Journal of Infectious Diseases just this last year, and this is looking at the percentage of patients with specific medical comorbidities uh, depending upon their payer class. The first uh, group are commercial patients, second are Medicaid, and third are Medicare patients. And you can see pretty much across the board, and some of them being statistically significant, that uh, common age-related comorbidities were uh, more, more frequent in people who were HIV infected. So I'm going to use that as a background to uh, describe a case, and then I'm going to pose some questions, and I'm not going to try to answer the questions now, but we'll come back to them when we get through discussion of the uh, comorbidity section. This is a 50-year-old man who was diagnosed with HIV infection 24 years ago. His risk behavior is sex with other men. He's asymptomatic. He's currently on uh, TAF, FTC, clobicostat, and, and elvitegravir with a CD4 cell count of 728 and a viral load that's suppressed. He has a family history of coronary disease. He smokes one pack of cigarettes per day. His blood pressure is 138 over 86. He's got an, a higher than normal BMI, 32. Remainder of his physical exam is unremarkable. His cholesterol is 200 with an LDL of 130 and his hemoglobin A1C is 6.2. So a very typical primary care patient at age 50. And the questions that we'll address towards the end are how should his blood pressure be further evaluated and does it require treatment? How should his cigarette smoking be managed? Should he be started on a statin for hypercholesterolemia? Should he be started on metformin for glucose intolerance? And what are important healthcare preventive and screening measures in this type of patient? So another question, 
Um, HIV infection has been associated with a following increased percentage of the risk of acute myocardial infarction beyond that explained by traditional risk factors. And I, I fully acknowledge that there are studies showing varying numbers here. I'm just trying to get a ballpark average. So 90%, 30%, 10%, or 50%. So they, these would be adjusted for traditional risk factors. What, what does HIV itself do in terms of conferring increased risk for myocardial infarction? You're a lot perkier with this question, so that's good. Okay, I think we should be okay now. And we got 55% saying 30%. That's not a bad answer. I was looking for 50, but I'll give you 30. 30 may be correct. I'm not sure. It's not 90 and it's not 10. Let's put it that way. All right? I'm going to show you one study that shows 50, but there are other studies that show differing numbers. So just a quick review. The incidence of coronary disease is, is still relatively low in HIV-infected patients. It's, it should increase as the patient population continues to age, but it's clearly higher than that in HIV-negative patients who are matched for age and gender. And there have been multiple studies looking at both subclinical and clinical markers of atherosclerosis, including uh, carotid intima media thickness and myocardial infarction to show this to be the case. Um, the hypothesis is that HIV infections associated with increased soluble and cellular markers of inflammation, even well-controlled HIV, endothelial dysfunction and altered coagulation, all of which have been known to be uh, risk factors and contributors to cardiovascular disease in people. Um, however, the degree to which HIV itself, uh, specific antiretroviral drugs, particularly abacavir and uh, protease inhibitors, and traditional risk factors contribute to increased risk in this population is not as clear. Um, what we do know is that discontinuation of antiretroviral therapy is not a good strategy and ultimately will lead to an increased risk of coronary disease as well as other bad outcomes. So this is one study, and there have, there have been many, uh, one study looking at the risk of coronary disease in HIV-infected patients. And this is the one I get the 50% range from. And there's a lot of uh, rows here. Uh, the only one important to look at is down in the second uh, group. This is, a, this is a case control study. The top group is uninfected. The bottom group is HIV-infected. And each of the columns is one decade of life. And down towards the bottom of the HIV-infected group, you'll see a line, that, if you can read it, that says incident risk uh, rate ratio uh, with a 95% confidence interval. And if I can read this correctly from here, you can see between 30 and 39, there's a 2.19, but uh, it cro the uh, confidence interval includes one, so that's not statistically significant. For 40 to 49, it's 1.34, so a 34% increase, and that does not include one. For 50 to 59, 1.80, and that's 1.47 to 1.21. And for 60 to 69 is 1.53, and again, that's statistically significant. If you uh, look at the numbers as a whole, what you come up with is that overall, although it varies from decade of life to decade of life, there's about a 50% increased risk that HIV infection and or its treatment confers to uh, increased risk of developing coronary disease when adjusted for traditional risk factors. So what do we do about it? Well, sometimes we tend to focus on HIV, forgetting that these these are people with HIV infection, but they're also 50 and 60 and 70-year-old, mostly men, that have traditional risk factors. And I think occasionally we spend too much time <clears throat> perseverating on which antiretroviral drug we treat them with and whether that's going to confer any risk for coronary disease, and less time getting them to stop smoking and to adequately control their blood pressure and to bring their hemoglobin A1C down closer to a normal range. So I'm just going to go through some of the traditional risk factors for atherosclerosis very quickly with you, and these are mostly for your reference, and I'm just going to highlight what's new about them or what's relevant to the care of HIV-infected patients. Hypertension, as I think many of you are aware, has undergone uh, changes in both diagnosis and management in the last year with a recent publication of the ACC-AHA Hypertension Guideline. And a couple of changes were made that are important to realize. One is there's more of an emphasis on the use, where available, of ambulatory blood pressure monitoring for diagnosis. The second is that uh, now uh, it appears that 
about 35 or 40 percent of the adult population qualifies as having hypertension. So if you're in this room, um, you get about 40 percent chance. So um, there's basically broken down now into stage one and stage two hypertension. Stage one used to be called prehypertension, and stage two used to be called hypertension. It's become increasingly clear that if you're in the stage one range most of your life, you do less well in terms of ultimate outcomes. Um, in terms of working up patients for hypertension, no different in HIV compared to HIV negative patients. Um, initial therapy is really not influenced by HIV serostatus. Uh, what is changed, though, is uh, not so much for HIV, but in general, is that we have lower target blood pressure readings. So we initiate, we tend to initiate therapy a bit earlier in many patients, although not everybody with stage one uh, uh, hypertension needs pharmacologic treatment. Uh, but the goal for treatment is down to 130 over 80 for most patients. Um, that generally is considered uh, ideal, and some patients it may need to be relaxed, particularly older patients that have stiffer vessels, where the morbidity of the treatment may outweigh the uh, effectiveness of lowering the blood pressure. And importantly, there's no significant antiretroviral therapy interactions with commonly used drugs for the management of hypertension. How about diabetes? Diabetes and HIV do not uh, portend well uh, for the kidneys. Um, so the study at the bottom, and I'll work my way up, show that people who have diabetes and HIV do less well, uh, and they seem to have a synergistic effect on renal dysfunction over time. And that shouldn't be surprising to anybody who's taking care of both types of patients. Um, HIV infection probably does increase the risk of diabetes, and this was a recent uh, publication uh, in uh, BMJ, Open Diabetes uh, Resident Care. Um, diagnosis is not any different in HIV patients. Treatment goals are no different. Non-pharmacologic and initial therapies are no different. A couple of uh, drug interactions or drug concerns to just be aware of as reminders. Most patients are no longer on older nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Unfortunately, tenofovir does not do this to the degree that older drugs used to. But metformin may cause lactic acidemia, so just uh, a heads up to make sure that uh, electrolytes are checked in patients as well as renal function. Um, and the other is that dalutegravir increases the metformin AUC, so it's not recommended uh, to exceed more than 1,000 milligrams per day. Uh, normally, we can go up in some patients to as much as 2,500 milligrams. Hyperlipidemia is a big un unanswered question in HIV-infected patients. Uh, any, of, any of those of you who are over the age of 60, this is what you do in your spare time. You plug your numbers into, the, um, into one of the cardiac risk factors. At least I do. I do it like every day, and the, I keep getting the same value. Um, but the, the bottom line is if you're a man and 60 years of age, um, you almo almost everybody's going to qualify for a statin. If you're a woman, you kind of luck out until you get a bit older, but um, basically if you're male and over the age of 60, you probably have greater than a 7.5% 10-year risk of developing an adverse cardiovascular event. So when we put HIV on top of this and we realize that neither of the common risk calculators that are used, the Framingham Risk Calculator and the American College of Cardiology AHA Risk Calculator, neither of them take into account the presence of HIV infection and whatever increased risk there is. You can see that many patients now and more patients in the future will benefit in a tangible way from being treated with statin therapy. And so it's, it's kind of a work in progress. There are large, there's a large trial going on now, as was previously mentioned, to try to figure out the role, the optimal role of statin therapy in HIV-infected patients. But just be aware that as the patient population continues to age, regardless, it may turn out to be a moot point because regardless of their HIV status, they're going to have greater than a 7.5% 10-year risk. And that's the current cutoff point for most patients in terms of where the benefits outweigh the potential risks of being treated with a statin. Almost all studies with statins would suggest, and these are different patient populations, although not so much uh, information in HIV-infected people, is that if you treat someone with statin therapy, you get a relative risk reduction of about 20 to 30 percent in adverse cardiovascular outcomes. And that's regardless of what we don't, we, you know, target LDLs are not generally used anymore. It's basically the direct effect of statin on people. A few caveats with the use of statins. Um, one is that protease inhibitors, particularly ritonavir, increase most statin levels. 
simvastatin and lovastatin are contraindicated with protease inhibitors and gobicostat, and atorvastatin or asuvastatin um, and patavastatin can be used as alternatives. Generally speaking, with statins uh, in HIV uninfected patients, we decide whether we want a so-called moderate potency statin or a high potency statin. High potency is usually a torvastatin, and moderate potency might be simvastatin or lovastatin. We just treat patients with it and go from there, and we pick a dose. In HIV, it makes more sense to me because of potential drug-drug interactions in some of them to start off with the lowest dose of the statin and actually monitor LFTs and muscle enzyme levels, uh, despite the fact that we do not do this as a general rule in uh, the general medicine population right now. So here's the ACC-AHA-CV risk calculator online. Again, it does not include HIV, and what we really need, and uh, time will tell, and we'll get it at some point, is we really need uh, a risk calculator that actually includes HIV so we can give people some honest advice on what the best course of action is. Again, many patients, because they're getting older, they're over the age of 50, some of them, a lot of, some of them are over the age of 60, and a disproportionate number are males are gonna qualify for statin therapy regardless of their HIV status. How about cigarette smoking? Um, we, there, there are some uh, data on cigarette smoking and HIV, and none of it's particularly good. Uh, one is that HIV-infected patients are more likely to smoke and less likely to quit compared to the general population. Um, a, a, uh, an article from about four or five years ago showed that HIV-infected smokers lose more life years to smoking than to HIV-related complications, and I think that trend will likely continue in the future. There's no evidence that one specific smoking intervention is more effective in HIV than others. Um, management uh, possibilities include um, uh, pharmacologic therapy, uh, including nicotine replacement, bupropion, and varin, uh, varin, I can't say, Shantix. I'm not supposed to say brand names, but it's harder to pronounce. Um, these can be used singly or in combination. Um, Shantex, just as a reminder, has been associated with an increased risk of suicide. There used to be a black box warning. The black box somehow or another got removed a couple of years ago, but certainly in someone who's emotionally unstable uh, or uh, uh, very depressed, uh, that probably should not be your first-line treatment. Uh, there are no important ART interactions with any of the commonly used drugs. All right, another question. Which of the following statements reflects the current IDSA HIV Medicine Association recommendations on bone densitometry screening in HIV patients? Should be performed in postmenopausal women and in men who are 50 years of age. Should be performed just in women who are 65. Should be performed in men and women who are 65, and it should not be routinely performed. This is based mostly on expert consensus rather than a lot of good data. All right, maybe we're close to where we should be. Okay, so 62% uh, of you got the right answer. It should be performed in postmenopausal women and in men who are <laughs> six or 50 years of age. Okay. So just a quick, quick reminder about premature bone loss, which hopefully will become less of an issue over time now that we're switching people over from TDF to TAF, is osteopenia, osteoporosis, and pathological fractures have all been described in HIV. Osteopenia is usually asymptomatic, although people can get fractures with osteopenia, so you just need to be cautious and look at the T-score rather than uh, whether, they're whether they're diagnosed with osteopenia or osteoporosis. Most commonly, osteoporosis presents with fractures of the vertebrae, the forearms, or the hips, and it's clear that HIV, chronic HIV itself, uh, TDF, uh, probably some protease inhibitors, an alteration bad vitamin D metabolism, and chronic lactic acidemia, particularly in patients that were on earlier nucleoside drugs, uh, may be contributing factors. Um, there are other factors as well, though, that you should take into consideration, and some of these are more amenable to intervention. So immobility is one. Bones tend to get less dense when people are inactive. Cigarette smoking is clearly an important one. Excess alcohol use, chronic kidney disease, hypogonadism, which is not unusual in uh, HIV-infected males, hyperthyroidism, and prolonged steroid use can also accentuate bone loss. 
Um, we already went over what the uh, HIV-MA uh, advises in terms of post in terms of bone densitometry. As a reminder, we should be advising all older patients to make sure they're getting an adequate amount of calcium and vitamin D. I don't know how much sunshine you get here. You probably get more than we do in Boston, but about 30 or 40 percent of the population in Boston is vitamin D deficient. So I don't spend a lot of time checking levels on them, but uh, do recommend that they take 1,000 units of vitamin D daily if they can remember to do so. This is one study out of many that have looked at specific antiretroviral drugs and their, how much they contribute to premature bone loss. And this actually looked at osteoporotic fractures. And it's an older study, so you can see some of the drugs we don't use so much anymore. There's TDF, there's abacavir, there's combination of AZT and D4T. Um, there's non-nucleoside non drugs and boosted protease inhibitors. And when you see a one and a two next to it, these are two different multivariate analyses. Anything that includes one and the hazard ratio is not statistically significant. And what you can see here is the TDF is clearly, was clearly associated with an increased risk of osteoporotic fractures. And uh, data that, that were presented to you earlier showed that switching people to TAF does make a difference in this. And the other group where there was a suggestion is really boosted protease inhibitors. And uh, this is a mixed group of patients, so there's not one specific protease inhibitor that was uh, identified here. All right, moving on to malignancies. Um, as people get older, they become at increased risk for traditional age-related malignancies. Um, there have been a variety of studies looking at malignancies in HIV, and there's actually one that was just published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, I think this week, um, suggesting that by 2030, um, the two most important malignancies in HIV-infected patients are probably gonna be lung cancer and prostate cancer. And that might, you might expect that given the prevalence of smoking in the patient population. Um, there have been observational studies suggesting that lung, hepatic, and anal cancers occur at a somewhat younger age in HIV-infected patients. And this one study that's cited here using 15 HIV and cancer registry databases, including over 200,000 patients with AIDS, the age of diagnosis of non-AIDS-defining cancers was examined. And in this study, only lung and anal cancers were seen in AIDS patients at a younger age. And again, probably reflecting the prevalence of traditional risk factors, particularly cigarette smoking and anogenital HPV infection. Uh, pulmonary diseases have been examined in HIV, and there are a wide range of pulmonary diseases, some of which are smoking-related, that are more frequent. Uh, this is a VA study of a large number of patients uh, compared to seronegative controls. They were matched by age, sex, race, and ethnicity. And not surprisingly, the incidence of COPD, lung cancer, pulmonary hypertension, which has been described for decades with HIV, and pulmonary fibrosis, which may be the result of recurrent uh, pulmonary infections, uh, was higher in the HIV-infected group. Cognitive dysfunction is an area of active interest. I would say that we don't really have the final word by any means on what happens as HIV-infected patients with suppressed viral loads age. We don't know, for instance, whether um, cognitive dysfunction attributable to HIV may all of a sudden become apparent or apparent at a low, at, uh, as patients start to age. We also don't know what effect chronic HIV infection, even with a suppressed viral load, has on the presentation of age-related cognitive uh, dysfunction uh, that might be seen in Alzheimer's or other dementing illnesses. And I think time will tell. Most of the studies have been small. Uh, several of them are older. I cite one here that's a fairly old study, but it's, it's, it's basically cited throughout the literature. It's a longitudinal study comparing a small number of HIV-infected patients um, between 20 and 39, and it showed a threefold higher risk of dementia on multivariate analysis when compared to people over the age of 50. And this study adjusted for race, education, depression, substance use, uh, ART, CD4 count, and viral load. I think the bottom line is we don't know what will happen with this patient population as they age, but there is uh, good reason to uh, keep attuned and make sure that if you're doing uh, screening for cognitive dysfunction that you consider doing it on a somewhat regular basis as HIV-infected patients age. I'm going to finish up with healthcare maintenance issues and just touch on a few issues, but first there's a question. Uh, which of the following statements regarding cancer screening in HIV-infected patients is incorrect? Mammography should be performed biannually in women 50 to 74. Colonoscopy should be performed every 10 years at age 50, assuming average risk of colon cancer 
PSA testing should be performed annually in men 55 to 69. Low-dose CT scan should be performed uh, in age, patients age 50 to 80 who have a 30-pack year smoking history or currently smoke or have quit within the past 15 years. And lastly, anal cytology should not be performed in men who have sex with men if there's no local expertise in interpretation and management. So which of these is incorrect? Good news about screening is if you wait five or ten years, the recommendations change. So if you're not if you're not right today, you may be right in another five or ten years. Okay, let's see what we got here. And 55% of you, I got what I think is the right answer is that PSA testing should not be performed annually. Now there's a caveat there: PSA testing should be discussed, and that's a change because for about five or eight years, we were told not to discuss it, and now we're told to discuss it again but not necessarily mandated. So it's very confusing. Patients are confused. They were confused in the beginning, and now the providers who have been practicing medicine long enough are totally confused. But that's the current recommendation of the Preventive Services Task Force, is that it be discussed in people that are at higher individual risk because of a family history or because of race. Uh, prostate cancer tends to be more frequent in African Americans <laughs> than Caucasians. Um, and it should actually be discussed in patients, all patients between the age of 55 and 69. This is the, uh, the CDC uh, chart for vaccinations in HIV-infected adults. I'm not going to go through it in detail. I have a few points uh, that are, are relatively uh, new. One is that meningococcal conjugate vaccine is now recommended in all HIV-infected <coughs> patients, um, and that's a new recommendation in the last year or two. Um, the other is that um, we now have, uh, there's a new hepatitis B vaccine, which I think Annie's going to talk about briefly uh, during her talk. I'm not going to say much about it other than, because I don't know much about it, other than it's only two injections rather than three injections. So there's a better chance that you actually might get somebody fully immunized. Um, the other thing that's not mentioned here is the new Zoster vaccine, Shingrix, which is a live attenuated uh, shingles vaccine uh, that's more potent than Zostrix, the previous one. And you can see there's a hole in the chart in terms of, um, of using a zoster vaccine in people with CD4 cell counts less than 200. Um, excuse me, CD4 cell count greater than 200, less than 200, the statement is that it's contraindicated. Um, I was reminded uh, by, uh, by one of our chairs that pediatricians for years, despite the fact that the CDC has recommended not giving live attenuated vaccines to HIV-infected patients with low CD4 cell counts have been doing it uh, with children with a supposedly good outcome. So I don't know the right answer to the question, but I think there's a lot of variability in practice right now in terms of how we use um, live attenuated vaccines like Shingrix and uh, other live attenuated vaccines in HIV-infected adults. Oh, you're, uh, you're, excuse me, you're right. Pardon me. Um, there's. Um, there's a, a, a um, yes, she said, said it's a, uh, it's a um, adjuvant vaccine, not correct. Thank you. Um, it's, it's just important to uh, keep in mind that um, right now the CDC does not recommend uh, giving live attenuated vaccines to HIV-infected adults with CD4 cell counts less than 200, and those would include measles, mumps, and, and rubella vaccines, and they're usually not indicated in adults anyway. Let me go on to cancer screening and talk briefly about this. Most of this is relevant to HIV uh, uninfected patients as well, but some of these have changed a bit over time. Breast cancer screening uh, for women at average risk, it's biannual mammography between 50 and 74 years. Um, this can be individualized. Some women like to get mammograms every year. Um, if there's an increased family uh, history or risk of breast cancer, then screening is oftentimes started earlier. Um, in terms of, there's some, some variability in terms of recommendations for cervical cancer screening. Um, the traditional teaching has been annual pap tests in women after uh, two normal pap tests have been documented with the role of HPV testing in HIV-infected patients being unclear. I'll show you a, a, a diagram in a moment uh, that gives an alternative strategy. Colon cancer screening for people at average risk, colonoscopy every 10 years starting at age 50 with earlier and more often screening if there's a history of adenomatous polyps or inflammatory bowel disease. And cancer screening, lastly, we, uh, we also touched on.
This is an algorithm that was uh, constructed from information on uh, guidelines for the prevention and treatment of opportunistic infections in HIV-infected adults and adolescents looking at cervical cancer screening divided between women less than the age of 30 and greater than the age of 30. Um, for uh, both groups, if PAP only is done, excuse me, if PAP, uh, for less than 30, if PAP is done at the time as diagnosis, uh, it should be done one year uh, from the first sexual encounter, no later than age 21. HPV co-testing is not recommended, and if there are three consecutive negative screens, then it can be repeated on an every three-year basis. For women over the age of 30, if it's PAP only is done, three consecutive screens can be, uh, be if, if they're negative, it can be repeated in three-year interval. And um, if HPV co-testing is done, and there's some controversy about HPV co-testing and how to interpret it in this setting, the recommendation if, is if HPV is positive and it's HPV 16 or 18, those patients get referred for colposcopy, where if it's non-16 or 18, the oncogenic strains that are repeat PAP test should be done in one year. Lung cancer screening is different now uh, compared to a few years ago. Um, there is some controversy about this recommendation, and not everybody certainly has, has implemented it. But um, low-dose CT scanning is now recommended for uh, adults age 55 to 80 who have a 30-pack year smoking history and currently smoke or have quit within the past 15 years. The screening can be discontinued once a person has not smoked for 15 years or has developed a health problem that substantially limits their life expectancy or ability or willingness to have curative lung surgery. How about anal cancer? There's no national consensus guidelines on this. Um, we do know that ART has not altered the prevalence of anal SIL and may be associated with an increased incidence of progression to anal cancer because of the long, longer life expectancy of HIV-infected patients nowadays. It's not inappropriate to screen, certainly, with anal cytology and many, many sites, that particularly that take care of a, a lot of uh, MSM, do this routinely but it should be done only if there's local expertise and interpretation and also the availability of a referral structure for high-resolution anoscopy with biopsy, as well as access to definitive treatment. Um, HPV vaccine can decrease the incidence of infection uh, with the types that are associated with anal cancer. This is one of several algorithms that has been published. I put this, this one's old, but it's still pretty much the way we handle um, abnormal anal pap tests at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Lori Panther, who used to work there, and uh, colleagues came up with this algorithm. Um, other algorithms vary a bit from this, um, but there is um, there's a standardized approach, which I think is important if you're going to be doing anal pap testing, and the recognition that cytology and histology may not only always correlate. In other words, people can have ASCUS on cytology and on histology may actually have evidence of uh, higher grade dysplasia. How about other screening? Infectious disease screening, STD should be screened at some regular interval for people that are at ongoing risk. I don't know what that interval is. It's probably more frequent for some patients than others. For people that are on uh, ongoing risk or historical risk for tuberculosis, they should be screened for latent infection with either a PPD or an interferon gamma, gamma release assay. And then uh, lastly, for cardiovascular disease, uh, obviously regular blood pressure checks. It's hard to go into a primary care office without getting your blood pressure checked. Um, abdominal aortic aneurysm should be screened in, uh, in smokers, anybody who's ever smoked one time during the age of 65 and 75 in men. And then the last question that comes up a lot is aspirin prophylaxis, both to protect against uh, uh, cardiovascular disease and colon cancer. And the, US, uh, the USPSTF recommends adults age 50 to 69 who have a 10% or greater 10-year cardiovascular risk are not at increased risk for bleeding and have a life expectancy of at least 10 years should consider low-dose aspirin prophylaxis. All right, I'm going to go back to the case and uh, before I summarize. So again, it's a 50-year-old man who was diagnosed with HIV infection 24 years ago. He's on uh, suppressive antiretroviral therapy. He's got a family history of coronary disease. His blood pressures would be considered stage one hypertension nowadays. His BMI is high. His cholesterol is also borderline high, and his hemoglobin A1C is also high. 
but not in a diabetic range. So this, this is how I would answer these questions. Some of you may answer them a bit differently. Should his blood pressure, how should his blood pressure be further evaluated and does it require treatment? Um, I know you can't read that, I can barely read it, but um, this is the instance where you might consider use of ambulatory blood pressure monitoring if it's available. We have it available at our place now and it turns out to be very useful and doesn't always, uh, blood pressures at home and average blood pressures at home are not always reflected in the blood pressures that you get at office visits. And there should be lower thresholds for diagnosis and treatment, whether that's non-pharmacologic or um, pharmacologic. And in this patient, I would probably start off with non-pharmacologic, particularly weight reduction, see if his blood pressure came down lower, if it was uh, verified on ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, and go from there. How should a cigarette smoking be managed? Individualized based upon the methods that are most likely to succeed. I think that's the bottom line in this patient population, and as it is with every patient population. You have to have a conversation with the patient, try to figure out what whether they recognize it as a problem, whether they're interested in stopping, and then go through the options with them and see which is likely to work best. Should the patient be started on a statin for hypercholesterolemia? I put his numbers through an HI, uh, through the ACCAHA risk calculator, and it comes out at 10.9% without adjustment for HIV infection. So I would, I would treat him, and I would start a torvastatin. Should this patient be started on metformin for glucose intolerance? Again, he's got a risk factor for glucose intolerance, which is obesity, I would have him work on weight reduction, and if it was not successful or no improvement in hemoglobin A1C, at some point I would start metformin. What healthcare preventive measure should be implemented? He should get HAV if he's seronegative, he should get HBV vaccine if he's seronegative, meningococcal conjugate vaccines and pneumococcal vaccines and a TB booster every 10 years. And what healthcare screening measures should be implemented? Low-dose aspirin for CAD and colon cancer prophylaxis should be considered. Colonoscopy, bone densitometry, and anal cytology if local expertise is available, and screening for STDs and TB based upon his history. So I'm gonna summarize, then I'll be happy to take questions. There's an increased need for primary care services for HIV-infected patients at the same time that there's a potential for decreased capacity to provide them. Both generalist and infectious, this is a little editorializing on my part, both generalists and infectious disease practitioners have important contributions to make in providing high quality primary care to this patient population. HIV infected patients may develop age related diseases at younger chronological ages and at higher frequency. The incidence of coronary disease is higher than that in HIV negative patients who are matched for age and gender. CID risk calculator results need to be interpreted in the context of an increased risk in the HIV-infected population, and for me that means a, doing some sort of fudge factor, and I'm not sure what that fudge factor should be, but whatever you get on the calculator, you should probably increase it, whatever you think the increased risk that HIV contributes is. Um, and I actually do that. I chose 50%. That might, may or may not be correct. HIV infection and its treatment and comorbidities are associated with premature bone loss, lung, hepatic, and anal cancers may occur at younger age in the HIV-infected HIV patients. And lastly, appropriate age and sex-related healthcare maintenance issues should be routinely addressed as part of comprehensive care. And I'm gonna stop now and be happy to take some questions. So we have a lot of questions submitted already. Please continue to write them. We have some time for questions and answers. Um, a couple of plugs just to remind people that actually Connie Wofsey, the late Connie Wofsey, was one of the founders of the Women's uh, uh, Research Initiative <laughs> through um, the uh, NIH. Um, the program is uh, running quite well, is now WISE, um, and it is it, based at UCSF and is still recruiting women. I think it's about right, is trying to merge with the MAC study, which many of us are aware of. So if you've got women with HIV, um, who will be interested in being followed longitudinally uh, and participate in studies, you can see that there are lots of unanswered questions. Likewise, you quoted one of Dr. Victor Valkyrie's early studies, and he, believe it or not, he's still recruiting patients for a lot of these studies. He uh, called me last week, and I don't know why he called me, but anyway, <laughs> uh, I am almost 70, um, <clears throat> because he he's, active, he's interested in recruiting HIV-positive patients who are 70 and above to a longitudinal study uh, trying to differentiate you know, sort of the uh, onset of Alzheimer's from HIV-associated cognitive changes, and he's very interested in recruiting patients. Um, and, um, and so Victor Valcourt at UCSF, again, is quite accessible. So there are lots of opportunities to address some of the important issues 
that Harold already uh, brought up um, in the course of his talk. So um, I guess one question, just to make sure everyone's clear, you didn't imply that there's a higher incidence of prostate cancer in the sign of HIV, just as we control HIV, other HIV-associated cancers are less likely, and so prostate and lung cancer, for other reasons, will emerge. Correct. Is That's that absolutely correct. Okay. There's, uh, there's no evidence, to my knowledge, that HIV increases the risk of prostate cancer. Okay. Uh, and then you brought up anal cancer um, in men and women, I should say. You talked extensively about um, about cervical cancer in women and made some general recommendations about anal cancer. So two questions. One, is there a role for the HPV vaccine in our HPV-positive um, patients? Many of them are mature and have had multiple sexual partners in the past. And number two is if you do have the resources available to deal with positive screening tests, when do you start screening? Um, the answer to the first question is I think yes, there is a role. Um, the biggest impediment for patients receiving it is they usually do not meet insurance published criteria for uh, treatment in terms of age range. So it may turn out to be something that they need to pay for out of pocket. I don't think we have a definitive answer, but I think it's a reasonable thing to offer and perhaps recommend to older HIV-infected patients at risk for HPV infection. Um, I don't know the I don't know the right answer to the to your second question. Um, I think I I don't I would imagine things get handled differently here. You're, the West Coast is always like way ahead of us, and sometimes you're in the right direction, and sometimes you're in the wrong direction. But we tend to be very conservative in Boston. And I would say even within our practice and within the city, there's a lot of variability around HPV screening uh, for anal cytology. And I would say a place like Fenway Health, which does the majority of LGBT health-related issues within our city, it's incorporated into their culture, and they do it essentially for all MSM. I don't know how frequently they do it. I'd imagine there's some provider-to-provider -provider variability. In our practice, which is more of a general medicine practice, I'd say it's all over the place. I can kind of just add to that, sure. in part because, you know, uh, when I was at Kaiser, we instituted a, a, a high-resolution um, program to actually screen for it, which I think was successful not only in diagnosing early uh, anal cancer, but also in some of the early stages of dysplasia, which is quite treatable. And we did not restrict uh, age um, in that program. And I want to say that it's very important, and I think it's generally true, and you already alluded to this, that these are people who can be managed in appropriate programs without sending them to the colorectal surgeons who have historically been rather aggressive. Right. Um, and usually, if one of our patients got into the hands of a colorectal surgeon, at least early on during our program, they never wanted to be screened ever again um, because of the, the treatment options, which are much more benign and effective. Yeah, at this the, point. the people actually in, in Boston that do high resolution anoscopy are not colorectal surgeons. Right. They're, one of them is ID trained, and the other is a general internist who took an interest in doing it and has become proficient in it. So a couple questions about bones and joints. One has to do with a, a problem that many of us saw years ago, and that was is there avascular necrosis in hips. And is this an ongoing issue that you're still seeing um, in the 21st century? And if so, how are, is there, are there preventive methods other than avoiding steroids and <clears throat> things like that. Um, I, have, I have not seen a case in over a decade, and I have a fair number of HIV-infected patients, most of whom have been HIV-infected for 20 or 30 years. Um, I don't know if that's a general fall-off or that's just my anecdotal experience. I haven't seen that much written about it in recent years, and um, so I can't, can't offer much above and beyond that. The patients that I've seen <coughs> it in are people that have had uh, one or more uh, traditional risk factors for avascular necrosis, such as excessive alcohol use or prolonged steroid use. Um, and then the question about the use of supplemental calcium, um, would you distinguish the use of calcium for, for all HIV patients versus those who have documented osteopenia, osteoporosis, or are you recommending calcium supplementation for all HIV-infected men and women? Um, I think anybody that's been diagnosed with premature bone loss, you should make sure that they're getting adequate calcium and vitamin D either in their diet or, if necessary, through supplementation. Um, I don't think I would broaden that to a general recommendation for the entire population. Okay. And we had some of this discussion, you alluded to it last night, about uh, vaccination with live vaccines in the setting of HIV. And, and all the guidelines um, reiterate the point you made, 200 uh, CD4s, in a, but there was some discussion around making exceptions of people who 
have been stably and completely suppressed right. with stable Im with a CD4 of 150 or you know 125 something like that. And so there, there may be a different population than those who are, have uncontrolled HIV right. infection. And in terms of people's individual discussion on a person-to-person -person basis over some of these. Right. I, I think like all aspects of medicine, things need to be individualized. You need to, whenever you're <laughs> considering any kind of therapeutic intervention or preventive intervention, you need to consider what the potential benefits are of the intervention and whether it's necessary and then what the potential risks are. And of the people below 200, I think the people that would be at lowest risk would be people who are virologically suppressed. Okay. And this is an interesting question about if we uh, <coughs> were to be more aggressive about our metformin use in prediabetes, would we be del delaying or, or masking diagnoses of true diabetes, which has a whole s algorithm of tests that we should be following for, you know, neurologic, renal, eye, you know, function eye exams and all that. So is, what's the trade-off? Do we, do we um, can we get away from all those additional tests if we just keep some from meeting criteria for diabetes? Yeah, yeah. it's a good question. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I would say I view adult onset diabetes um, as mainly an issue of obesity. I think the obesity is the primary problem and diabetes is a secondary problem. Some patients you can work at uh, with weight reduction and essentially the vast majority of patients that are obese and develop uh, adult onset diabetes can actually get their hemoglobin A1C down even to a normal range with correction of diet and weight reduction. Um, I'm a bit more aggressive uh, about treating HIV-infected patients with any uh, atherosclerotics risk factors. I, it's not based on science. It's just based on the notion that I think they're going to be at increased overall risk compared to the general population. So if I'm going to treat someone with prediabetes with metformin, I, this would be the patient population that, in my mind, would make most sense to be more well, aggressive. We have with. other risk factors. You yes. can't get off cigarettes, et cetera, Correct. et cetera. Family history, the whole thing. I guess the, the other point is sometimes we, again, we focus so much on the HIV. We, people get labeled with specific conditions, and so we think of them as an HIV-infected patient when actually they're a 60-year-old man with hypertension, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, cigarette smoking, and they also happen to have HIV infection. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes our emphasis gets out of kilter. Um, there's a question about travel medicine, actually, uh, in terms of advice, and I, we didn't really address that as a separate topic, but the yellow fever vaccine, even though the standard vaccine is not available in the United States because <coughs> the shortage worldwide, there are, there's an alternative provided at very specific sites. It's a live vaccine. Do you have um, an absolute prohibition against yellow fever vaccine, or you follow the guidelines for the assessment of risk and age, or what's your... I, I tend to be a guideline follower, but um, there are people here on the West Coast that are clearly more adventurous, so... Um, <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know the right answer. Again, you need, you need to go through what the potential benefits and risks are of these kind of interventions. Obviously, the last thing you want to do in giving someone an immunization is make them ill. Um, on the other hand, I think for most patients, the decisions need to be individualized. It requires a conversation with the patient and providing them with the best knowledge you have available. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good point. I did look into this recently as I was traveling to Brazil um, and approaching and above the cutoff for you know, where the risk goes up for side effects. And, you know, there are Canadian studies that show that the majority of, of death uh, in Canada for a while were in travelers who got the vaccine and had a vaccine-related problem and not from malaria. And so that some of the standard, you know, from the Canadians who, who were traveling. And so a lot of times just talking about maybe risk factors for acquiring malaria. So I safely went to Rio for five days and did not... Um, uh, come down with malaria, even though I was in the jungle and all this stuff. So it, it is a risk benefit all the time. But there is evidence that sometimes we are, have been a, historically, a little, as practitioners, a little too liberal with yellow fever vaccine, although I would remind people if you can get it, uh, now the WHO guidelines say if you've got, a, got the vaccine once in your life, you are now covered. And you don't need to be revaccinated at 10 years, as was the routine. So I get a careful history and say, I will write you a letter um, that covers you because you got, you know, when you were in the Peace Corps um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that covers you. So there are lots of things that we need to still be looking at, and I think that this is, it's an interesting dilemma. There is no treatment. If you develop a yellow fever vaccine-associated um, complication, there's no real treatment for it except supportive, whereas if you have a live shingles vaccine problem, at least we have a cyclovir and some options that we can um, uh, utilize for, for treatment of, of 
toxicity. Um, the next last question was sort of alluded to earlier today, and I'm going to read it verbatim because it does re-bring up another issue. So we're talking statins and calcium and vitamin D, aggressive anti-hypertensive therapy, aspirin, maybe diabetes treatment. So why do we care about a, a single tablet ART? You brought up that issue earlier, I think. So I'm going to ask you to readdress it. Um. Primary care is, uh, is always a, an issue of balances, and there's always a patient agenda list and there's a provider agenda list. And I think sometimes we pay more attention to our list than our patient's list. So for some patients, one pill, getting down to one pill once a day may be extraordinarily important. I would say for the vast majority of people, it probably isn't highest on their list, and it's certainly not highest on our list. So again, it needs to be individualized. I, mean, I think, again, having been in practice, I can assure you that if someone comes in wanting to get a single tablet and all you do is talk about their cigarette smoking, they will leave unhappy right. and unlikely no, no. to have been satisfied with your you, advice about cigarette cessation. You, you, so you have to address their questions I, at the same time. Absolutely. So if you're doing primary care right, there's a two-minute assessment on both sides. You check each other out. <laughs> you figure out what the agenda is for the day. And you better make sure that you include at least a couple of their items, even if they're not number one or two on your list. Great. Good. Thank you very much. You're Thank welcome. you again. Sure. Actually, the last comment leads us into the next talk, and I think uh, Dr. Lugermeyer is going to introduce our next speaker.